This series is presented by Humankind Public Radio in association with the BTS Center. Funding provided by the Henry Luce Foundation. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. You're listening to the Spiritual Care Podcast. I'm David Freudberg. This time, welcoming the stranger. of this earth. We are neighbors together. We only survive together. And when somebody feels the separation, this sense of outsidedness, this fear of the other, that they don't belong, that's where the deep wounding really is. Kay Eaton is director and lead chaplain of the Mental Health Chaplaincy, founded in Seattle over 30 years ago. They serve a population facing homelessness and addictions and mental illness, a community that is often marginalized. I visited one Seattle site where vulnerable street people can get a meal and find shelter. I was accompanied by social worker Larry Klum. This is called the Mission? Union Gospel Mission of Seattle. It started in 1932 during the Great Depression. The place just south of here was called Hooverville where there were multitudes camped out. People were in dire straits, and churches came together, formed a union, and volunteers would come in here and serve meals. It became essentially a soup kitchen, and then it evolved into more programs, recovery programs, outreach programs, and now we're one of the larger missions in the United States. I think we're the third or fourth largest. Uh, We have... Oh, 13 different buildings around King County. Here in Seattle? Yeah, in the Seattle area. Larry is director of community mental health programs at the Mission. He introduced me to someone he'd met on a street corner about five years earlier, a man known as T.Y., which stands for Thomas Young. T.Y. was a professional basketball player in Europe. Now, at age 65, he's hit upon hard financial times as well as health concerns, including heart problems. He has trouble standing for long periods and wears an oxygen tube, which you'll hear. He often hangs out in Pioneer Square downtown. I panhandle down there. Okay, and I know everybody down there in Pioneer Square. Everybody knows T.Y. So I'm the self-proclaimed mayor of Pioneer Square. Yeah, this is true. But even for a mayor, the streets can be a lonely and cold place. T.Y. says he came to recognize that Larry and his co-worker Ryan Likes truly cared about him. When I was uh, um, out there, you know, homeless and whatnot, didn't, didn't have nothing, right? Lost my mind behind it. Every now and then, I would pray. And you know something? After I got up off my knees... Oh, I felt so good. You know, I really felt good, you know. You know, even though it was a temporary fix, but I found out about that. If I keep praying, it's a permanent fix. And so whenever I got down in a rut, I just prayed. And it still works, you know, and I recommend uh, 
people to get on get on the heaven bound train. You know, I truly recommend it to anybody. Get on the heaven bound train. That's right. That's right. And it picks up all passengers. You know, you know, it don't discriminate. You know, you, you won't be an illegal alien. You know, that thing that Trump is doing, whatever. Well, this ain't political, but. So when you interacted uh, with Larry and with Ryan, and they were talking with you and listening to you, and they were giving you ideas, can you describe some of what that was like? Well, to me, it it, it, it filled me, you know, because it gave me a a sense that someone really cares about me, you know, you know, and and they were relentless, you know. I didn't see them one day and saw them again two months later, you know. I would see them maybe four times or five times a week, you know, and they were always there. Ask me, what do you need? And what would you tell them that you need? Some socks, <laughs> you know. Oh, I socks them to death, oh boy. You know, they gave me uh, um, not necessarily guidance, you know, but uh, inner strength, you know, to, uh, to carry on, you know, because I suffer from depression, you know. And Has that been true for a long time? What, the depression? Yeah, oh, yeah, for ever since um, I went through this homelessness ordeal, you know. Yeah, that's when I really developed it, you know. I still take medicine for it. Yeah, I'm weaning myself off of it, though, you know. You know, it must, you know, be a prescription druggy, you know. T.Y. has a long history of recurrent major depressive disorder. He has battled poverty, hunger, addiction, and family discord. T.Y. turns to his Christian faith for strength. He told me that today he lives in a decent, small apartment and depends on Social Security. To supplement his income, T.Y. continues to panhandle, which he views as therapy that allows him to be around others. People working with this population are inspired by Reverend Craig Renenbaum, who founded the Mental Health Chaplaincy in Seattle in 1987 and is considered a pathfinder in the field. It highlights the practice of companionship, which emphasizes welcoming, listening to, and walking alongside people who feel estranged. I talked with several chaplains. Here's Kay Eaton. The person who is suffering uh, has a sense of being on the outside, being marginalized, and that's a fearful place to be because they're not accepted. They, they don't feel that, that they're wanted or they're accepted. So creating safe space with that in mind, that welcome, you know, um, asking a person what they'd like to be called. Uh, it may be their given name, it may not be. It may be, may be a street name, but it's the thing that identifies them as a unique person. So that introduction and that, that naming is an important piece of creating safety. Um, creating safety for the, the caregiver, whether it's 
uh, somebody from the neighborhood who has learned something about companionship, sitting at meal with someone, or whether it's an, a chaplain who's been educated and knows companionship is really not that important. Um, the key is that there's a mutuality and a respect for one another, uh, regardless of your circumstance. That that common dignity is the great equalizer. People who are in suffering are all around, and, and they are reaching out to us through our senses. Reverend Jonathan Newfeld is a community minister at Seattle Mennonite Church in the Lake City section. He coordinates a day center for homeless people there. You can choose to ignore uh, what your senses are receiving and taking in. Uh, you can turn your eye towards and have a whole bunch of tapes in your head that are telling you to walk away or this isn't your problem or what did this person do to, to do this to themselves or um, all the tapes that we, that we um, play in our head that uh, give us permission to walk away or turn away. Um, and companionship tells us that our senses are, uh, is actually a, a point of invitation uh, to perhaps draw closer, to have a, at least the briefest connection which acknowledges their existence and their humanity, uh, whether it's just a simple greeting. And if that encounter uh, is repeated and comes into your sort of your frame again and again, um, perhaps there might be opportunities for that interaction to develop. Um, but you may also make no assumptions about that. So um, in the context of our day center where we bring together people who are volunteers and concerned citizens with people experiencing homelessness, I think the, the simple introduction of one person to another is the beginning of welcoming the stranger. In the context of our community ministry, we have you know, neighbors, uh, housed neighbors who volunteer, who come into the day center and sit at table with people and get to know each other by name. Um, the best outcome for me uh, as a person working in a neighborhood is knowing that those volunteers in the neighborhood who now have gotten to know each other, uh, gotten to know people experiencing homelessness by name, now walk in this neighborhood knowing people and being known. And when you are otherwise walking in a neighborhood where you don't know your neighbor by name, um, that you have never met and never had the chance to even make the basic human connection of knowing who you're with, uh, you can walk in a neighborhood with a lot of fear um, and uncertainty about what you're encountering, especially when you see someone who is suffering. Um, but when you've had that initial chance to, to make a human connection, you walk in your neighborhood uh, in a like it transforms your sense of safety in that space because you now know each other. Why do we fear the person who's suffering? It feels out of control. It feels like um, unpredictable. It feels uh, you might fear something of what you see uh, in, in yourself, uh, possible, uh, revealed in, in someone's suffering or response to suffering around them. The struggles of people dealing with homelessness and mental health challenges can be aggravated by how society treats these folks. They're often facing inner conflicts as well. Beverly Hartz works for the Veterans Administration Puget Sound Healthcare System in Seattle, where she serves as a chaplain in the inpatient mental health unit. 
Many times I find that the stranger is a stranger to himself or to herself. And coming beside them in this welcoming, this hospitality, where we uh, stand next to and bear witness and gaze into the eyes of this person, we start to uh, watch them perceive their own identity differently. Perceive themselves differently. Exactly. We, most of us, are lucky enough to have many things that ground us into our identity. You know, our families, our friends, our vocations, our jobs, our homes. Um, and when we find people that have, um, have severed ties with those grounding moments, they often lose themselves in the process too. So if we can look at them, um, not as the other, but as ourselves, if I can see myself in you, then we start to create a reality, actually for both of us. It's not a one-way street. It's a gift that travels in both directions. So that's a very deep insight, to be able to see yourself in the person that you're looking at, that you're working with, that you're trying to help in some way. Can you explain what it means to see yourself in them? Because outwardly, they may be very different from you. I think we move through phases of that kind of awareness. We may pass someone on the street that's um, disheveled and unhoused, and we say, well, that's not me. That's not me, and that never could be me. We may move to the step of saying, there but for the grace of God go I. But I think the final and most important step we have to take is to say, there I am. That is me. So when you say, there I am, that is me, that's a, a deep identification with their humanity? Yes. We are one. Uh, we fight against that every day. We do the best we can to create the illusion that we're all separate, uh, but we are not. I, I believe it's very true that whatever is happening uh, to that person that I am seeing, that I am bearing witness to, in many ways it's happening to me also. And are you noticing in yourself when you are in dialogue with that other person, those parts of you that are being touched, those buttons in you that are being pushed? Absolutely, you have to be aware of that. Um, we do a great deal of training of becoming aware of our own triggers and our own buttons. Exploring ways to welcome the stranger to help people who are facing homelessness, addiction, and other mental health challenges. You're listening to the Spiritual Care Podcast. I'm David Freudberg. To learn more and to access additional episodes of this podcast, along with other resources, please visit spiritualcarepodcast.org.
The Seattle metro area has recently experienced a surge in homelessness. Analysts attribute the spike to inadequate affordable housing in an attractive city. Powerhouses like Amazon, Microsoft, and Starbucks are headquartered there and put upward pressure on the cost of living. People at the margins may find themselves no longer able to hold on. Here's T.Y. recorded at the mission. Again, you'll hear his oxygen tube. Let me tell you something about me, man, you know. In the beginning, man, you know, I'm big, black, and ugly, okay? I, I think you're big and black, but I don't think you're ugly. I think, I think you might have that part wrong. Well, I'm big, black, and very handsome then. But sometimes I would cry like a baby. I mean, just cry. You know, it hurts so much. You know, and um, some people let it out in different ways, you know, maybe do drugs or whatever. But I used to cry, man. What was it that hurt so much at that point? Well, a lot of it was uh, uh, loneliness. You know, um, sometimes you sink low where you, you, you think you don't, you're not, you don't have a purpose. But sad days, man. No. And are those in the past for you? I plan for them to be in the past for me, you know. I, you know, I'm going to do everything in my powers, you know, to keep them back there, you know. That's just like Satan, you know. Tell that boy, get behind me, you know, because you know, it's a victory for me, you know, you know. How would you describe your relationship today with God? Well, he's the master, you know. I, I, I talk to him as often as I can. You know, uh, I might pray um, some eight, nine times a day. You know, call him up. You know, and you know something else, though, man. You call him up, you will never, ever, ever get a busy signal. And you probably won't even be put on hold. And you won't be put on hold. No, that's right. No. Yeah, just got to talk to him, you know, um, tell him what you need, you know. you know, tell him what you need, you know, and he might not give you what you want, but he'll give you what you need, you know, that's real talk to him, he'll give you what you need. So what is your part of that bargain, if God gives you what you need? and you can rely on that. What do you need to do? Faith and honor God. Larry Klum, the social worker who connected me to T.Y., co-founded the Seattle Clubhouse, a psychiatric rehabilitation program that helps clients find meaningful work and relationships. Larry has also served as an emergency room social worker. Foundational to welcoming the stranger is changing my whole paradigm of how we address human need. Um, in the ER, in the hospital, in the medical field, we think about the fundamental problem being our mortality and addressing that. Yet, 
maybe the fundamental problem actually is isolation and separation from others in society, and we really see that with mental illness. And so when we think of people in those terms, it's much easier to approach in the sense that I'm not here to do something for this person as much as I'm here to be with the person. So to abandon the goal of trying to fix them? To fix, yeah, to have a solution. And I think that causes a hesitancy in, in many of us to approach because we think we're not experts. This person's having symptoms here that are beyond me. I'm just a shelter worker. What can I do? Yet if we think about it in terms of this person is very lonely, and this is something we've all experienced in our life, um, it's much easier to approach um, with the idea of just being with, being alongside the person and um, doing life, observing the, the senses around us, whatever's happening in that moment, and not looking to come up with a solution immediately, seeing the person. So what is the healing effect of being with somebody and seeing them without a specific intent to fix their problem? I don't really know how to explain how it happens, but it's amazing how it works. Once you start that process, um, our outreach has taken on a very different, non-traditional form from other outreach programs. We try to key in after time, and this is a gradual process getting to know someone, key into their particular likes, their particular gifts. Uh, in some cases, someone might disclose that they're a cinephile. They love to watch movies. And in that case, we would go watch movies with the person as part of our outreach. I've taken people golfing on ferry rides to park tours. You've got a great job. It's not bad. <laughs> yeah, it's not bad. Hopefully my boss isn't listening right now. No, he knows about that. <laughs> and what that does is it just transforms that person. They come out of their shell. Um, for the first time, maybe they're doing things that they haven't done in years. And they're more willing to talk then at a certain point about getting help. But again, that's not the goal. The goal is just to get to know the person and do life with them, things that they enjoy doing. And uh, what we've seen is lives transformed, many stories, just from taking that bent, that angle on approaching, uh, on welcoming the stranger, rather than what can we do to help this person, fix this person. Reverend Beverly Hartz, in her work as a mental health chaplain at the VA Puget Sound, cares for people who may be deeply depressed or struggling with bipolar disorder or substance abuse and other conditions. She's also an educator of spiritual care professionals. In our clinical pastoral education programs, which board-certified chaplains must take, we are very much being trained uh, not so much on techniques or, or skills, but believing that 
we are the technique. Our presence needs to be uh, so in the now and profound that we are the toolbox that is meeting the other and welcoming the other. And is that exhibited through your demeanor? Oh, so, so many things. Uh, of course, your demeanor, all the nonverbals that, that we know about, the, the way we're um, using our body, our gaze, our tone of voice. Of course, it's that. But it's also something that is um, inside of us, the very core of our essence becomes involved, and in my language, I would call that the spiritual part of myself that is, that is trying to touch the spiritual part or the soul of the person I'm with. That is more than just physical, that's physical, emotional, uh, psychological. It's, it's the totality of the human experience is involved in that. I can't leave one part of myself outside the door. I have to bring my whole self into the encounter. So does this take hard inner work? Is, is this a difficult state to achieve? Well, it's not easy. And it takes a, a dedicated and profound commitment to become this kind of person. If you're developing that consciousness to be present with others in a kind of authenticity that radiates from your spiritual center and hopes to touch theirs. Does that seep into other areas of your life than just this work? Absolutely, it has to. And um, I, w I would go back to Martin Buber and his I-thou relationships versus I-it relationships where my interactions with someone are more transactional in an I-it relationship. I'm checking out my groceries and I'm, um, my relationship with the, the clerk that's checking me out, I can, that can be a transactional relationship. That can be an it, I-it relationship. Nobody would think anything about that. But I believe that once you're in this kind of work, you want to minimize your transactional interactions with others. And you want to start to see everyone as a thou. You can be passing someone in a hallway or on a sidewalk. And if you meet their gaze and smile and say good morning, it's fascinating watching the transformation that takes place on their face. You saw them, and translated, that means they're a thou. They're a sacred being, as are you, and we have totally erased the it from that very short dialogue. Because, believe me, that is a dialogue that is happening. It may be seconds, but it is a dialogue. That every interaction at base is a spiritual encounter. I see you, I value you, you and I are one. And that mutuality derives in part from an understanding that all people to some extent have in the course of life experienced emotional dilemmas and wounds. The journey of healing is how we adjust and recover from these injuries.
And while people's problems may differ, both spiritual care providers as well as the people they care for share that basic human condition. Kay Eaton of the Mental Health Chaplaincy. When two people come together in this authentic way, bringing their, you know, their own story, their own woundedness, uh, is a piece of what I bring. It, it's not to, to bring them into my story, and it's not, I'm not there as a companion to get sympathy necessarily or to, to have them move out of their story into mine, but I'm bringing my story with me. And I'm being, you know, honest about that and as it may relate to them. So they can see me as a mutual person rather than an authority or a fixer. Um, And then I acknowledge them as somebody with that unique story as well that is full of dignity, and I honor that. What happens in that space in between? It changes both people. The issue of being connected deeply with another person and believing deeply in their humanity and in their mutuality is that even if they hold no hope, and even if they feel on the outside, we know that there is hope and we hold hope for them. And we know that we are one, as Bev has said, and that they are part of the universe that we are a part of and that we can move together. And the reason we know that, hopefully, is that we've done the work ourselves. We've done, we recognize the work in ourselves. Meaning work in yourself that arose from personal wounds? Personal wounds, personal struggles, personal fears. One of my first encounters in the VA on the uh, inpatient mental health unit was with a veteran who had been admitted for homicidal ideation. Bev Hartz. Very, very large man and had the power to be intimidating but wasn't. But he was being discharged and requested to see a chaplain. So what he wanted to talk about was the fear that he had of being back on the streets and uh, would, it, would he hurt someone? That was his, really the, the deepest concern of his. Would he end up hurting someone when he really didn't want to? And so we talked about that for a while. But before um, we parted, I blessed his hands to be used for helping and healing rather than hurting. And he broke down and started crying, this huge, enormous bear of a man. And that's when I think of that in-between space. It's a strange mathematical dilemma where one plus one equals three. It's unquantifiable in that moment. There's no name for it. And that's what I see in my experience, a lot of these um, veterans, especially that I work with, their allowance for um, God, a higher power, is not going to um, outpicture in a traditional sense. I mean, we're not talking necessarily 
you know, church, Bible study. We're not talking the traditional method of expressing your faith, spiritual disciplines. You know, we're, we're looking at something else that comes from deep inside of them, but it's often unnameable to them. Listening to the Spiritual Care Podcast, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Doug Sugarts. Editorial assistance from David Cruz, Andrew Andresco, Kathy Graham, and Ken Rogers. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Kay Eaton, Larry Klum, and Tony Buck. The Spiritual Care Podcast is presented by Humankind Public Radio. To learn more and to access our other podcasts and related resources, please visit spiritualcarepodcast.org. That's spiritualcarepodcast.org. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. 